This is Michael Acapinti, and you're listening to Talking Blues. I used to do a radio show at uh, up at the York Station when I was in university at CHRY. Okay. Okay. So. Did you enjoy doing the radio show? I did. Yeah? yeah. What yeah. kind of radio show was it? I did a show called, uh, we called it Running the Gamut, and we would play everything from jazz to new music, contemporary, you know, classical music, and we tried to be 100% Canadian. Wow. So, yeah, it was interesting. Which is pretty well the type of music that you, you're into. I from guess jazz it is. Music, right? I guess it is, yeah. How did you first get into jazz? Um, my older brother, Roberto, probably more than anything, um, when I was a you know, I'm 12 years younger than he is. So, you know, by the time I was, you know, seven, he was already making a living playing music, you know. And, right. and uh, so he used to, um, uh, especially around junior high, I started playing the clarinet. And he used to uh, he used to do shows at the Royal Alex. And a lot of times he would invite me to come and sit in the in the pit. You know, and, and see the the orchestra in the pit. So I'm sorry. This means that like theatrical shows. Yeah, theatrical shows. Yeah. So you know, he was kind of the first call bass player for a lot of those theatrical shows that would come through, like things like Chorus Line. You know. Right. And uh, so then he would invite me to come down and sit in the pit, and uh, and then afterwards we would off. He would take me up to George's Bourbon Street, uh, which is you know was on yeah. on Queen Street at uh, University, uh, and they didn't really let kids in, but. You know, as long as we ordered a pizza, they would let they would let me in, and uh, so I got to see Lenny Bro there. Wow! Um, what age would you? What age would you? Have I been? would be about twelve years old. You know, and so you're not playing guitar at this point. I wasn't playing guitar yet. I started guitar when I was thirteen. Okay. So, um, but uh, yeah, so we saw Lenny Bro, and uh, I think I saw Kenny Wheeler, um, and then um, you know, and then my brother started. You know, he he would play in. Uh, you know, in, in different jazz groups. And uh, when I started taking guitar lessons when I was 13, I was taking lessons with a guy named Carlos Lopez, and he and my brother uh, had a little f- kind of fusion jazz quartet, and they had a, a regular house kick in the beaches. So I would often go down, see my teacher, play with my brother, you know. And, and then my oldest brother, Peter, who's 18 years older than me, um, he was really into uh, Jeff Beck. And so he got me interested in Jeff Beck and... and uh, People like Larry Carlton, he was, you know, kind of fusion guys. And, and then my cousin David, who's, you know, David's only five months older than me. Uh, and we went to the same junior high, um, same high school. So, you know, we both were started playing guitar around the same time. He was a little bit ahead of me. Um, still is probably, but, uh, <laughs> um, you know, and, and uh, so he, you know, and he, he got me interested. He was in, into Pat Metheny, so I went and saw Pat Metheny with him. And so, you know, I, that's that was kind of how I got into jazz. The funny thing is I was, of course, doing all the things that people my age did at the same time. So I, you know, I was um, not only, learn, you know, I was learning all the classic rock stuff. Uh, you know, my brother Peter uh, taught me Eric Clapton's guitar solo on Crossroads live, you know, with Cream live, and, right. you know, and, uh, um, and so I was learning all the blues, you know, stuff. I got really into Stevie Ray Vaughan. Um, but at the same time I was really into people like Andy Summers with the police and, uh, Adrian Ballou with King Crimson and Talking Heads and, um, you know, and, and so I started to see the guitar from multiple angles. You know, I, I saw it as a, 
it's sort of a rock, a blues rock thing. And, uh, and then seeing, you know, Lenny Bro or Ed Bickert, um, I, you know, I appreciate it as a jazz instrument. Right. And then I really, you know, I really liked what Andy Summers was doing, you know, with, you know, and then eventually people like The Edge or uh, with U2 or Charlie Birchall with Simple Minds, people who kind of were creating textures, you know, and, and it's funny because that's basically what I do, all those things. <laughs> you know. When you create textures, you have to have effects pedals, correct? Can you... Can you be you, a guitarist who creates textures without much effects? Um, yeah, you can. I mean, I, I think so. I, I think that you can use the, you know, I use the volume knob on my guitar mm. a lot. So that that's something I got from Jeff Beck. Um, and that's a, a very expressive thing. I mean, really, if you think about it, Jeff Beck's a great example. I mean, he's super, he's about the most expressive guitar player I know. He doesn't really use a ton of effects, you know. Mm. He uses a little bit of, you know, ring modulator and some delays and reverbs. But for the most part, it's coming from the guitar. And even though I do use pedals, I still approach it that way, that it's really it's coming from me. You know, it's an extension of my voice. So so it's it's still coming from the guitar, and, and all the tone is coming from the guitar. And, and, and uh, you know, and just what you play, you know. Um, does does Peter still play? My brother, yeah. my oldest. Yeah, he he's sort of mostly retired. Um, you know, he mostly rides a bicycle these days. I, I you know he's out in Burlington, so I don't see him that much. But um, but of course, my brother Roberto is super active, mm-hmm. um, and I get to play with him sometimes. So. so would the brothers have been more of an influence? Like, did your parents listen to a lot of music? My parents did listen to a lot of music. Um, my dad uh, was a stonemason by training in Sicily, but he. He always loved music and he loved to sing. And he was kind of unique in his family. He had quite a few siblings, but they all, all my uncles and my aunt always told me, you know, they're like, yeah, your dad, he loved music, you know, and he loved to sing. And none of them are like that. None of them particularly seek out music, go out to music. My dad loved to hear music and loved going out to hear stuff. Um, and he was a pretty good amateur singer. I think in another life he would have been an opera singer. Right. You know, when the operas would come to Sicily, he would volunteer to help build the sets at the theater. Uh-huh. And, uh, and he, you know, it was funny. He, and he would enter these, like, amateur singing contests, apparently. Um, this is stuff I learned when I went to Sicily. And, and so it was kind of fun because I've done a couple of gigs in this little theater in the city of Modica where my parents are from. And my dad used to enter singing contests there. And, you know, my uncle used to work the ticket booths, and that's where my dad would build the set. So it was kind of cool to have that connection to a physical place. So I guess there wasn't any backlash about you and your brother pursuing music. Oh, sure there was. Oh. Uh, <laughs> I, I, and I also want to credit my, before I say that, I, I'd say that my, my mom deserves a lot of credit because she loved music. And so she was the one that had the radio on at home all the time. And mm-hmm. she was a homemaker when I was a kid. Um, I'm the youngest of five, so she had worked at various times with the other kids. But from with, by the time I came along, she was pretty much at home, and so it was a lot of times just her and I. And she had the radio on all the time, and and she liked pop music. You know, she liked the Beatles. Um, so if I, you know, put the Beatles on, she was good with that. And you know, and um, you know, and the one thing I didn't realize it at the time, of course, as a teenager. But the one thing my parents the greatest thing they ever did was let me take over the basement with my rock band, you know? <laughs> right. You know, just having a place where we could all go play music was yeah. really, really special. Um, getting back to your question about, you know, did they, were they opposed to it? 
not so much with me, um, but they were they were you know they were a little worried when my brother Roberto chose you know to pursue music. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's what he wanted to study at university. Um, I think that kind of went away when he became the principal bassist with the Canadian Opera Company because then my dad was like, oh. <laughs> Okay, opera. That's cool. <laughs> and you know, it's funny. Like with me, I think I think my dad in particular. You know, I did pretty well in school, so my dad's. You know, he he, he kind of had this feeling of like, you know, you're good at school. Why would you become a musician? <laughs> you know, you're really smart. Why would you do that? You know, was it was yeah. there any other op- option for you? For me, yeah, yeah there was. Um, you know, it's. It, I mean, I from the moment I started playing the anything actually i love the clarinet too you know i wish i'd continued it but when from the moment i started playing the guitar i knew that it came to me fairly easy or that i was more driven to get good at it compared to my friends who were taking guitar lessons i could see that it didn't mean as much to them to practice or to play you know and um and uh and you know certainly when i was in grade nine and i started my first rock band um you know i was the one who would put the put the record on the turntable and figure out everybody's parts and then teach them their parts, you know, and, and, uh, so you were like a natural band leader. Yeah, I guess, I guess, I, I, I mean, yeah, I mean, I never wanted to front a band. I was never the singer, you know, but, right. I, but yeah, I guess I was, I was a natural band leader or, or I worked towards being a band leader. Um, it came, I guess maybe the way to say it is it came fairly easy to me, you know, that idea of like knowing what everybody's parts were and what they should be and what they were doing wrong and what they were doing right. Um, and but you know when I got into uh, you know when I was in high school I I um, I had this uh, eventually I kind of switched from you know having like a classic what we would now call a classic rock band to playing in like in an original new wave kind of project you know kind of based influenced by the Talking Heads and right. Simple Minds and things like that and um, and and that was uh was good for me it was a different social group they were a little older than me but they were they were pretty serious about music and they were serious about writing music and so my friends and I kind of dedicated all of our free time to that band and and you know we had this idea that eventually we would put out a record and you know it'd be this that would be it you know and but all, but my my friends had more of the view that you know they would go to university for other things mm-hmm. and then the, you know, and then do the band, you know, like as a hobby, as or or even or just to see, you know, if it succeeded, then you know you would, right? You know that classic uh, thing of going to school and then you know yeah, abandoning it if your band takes off, kind of thing. Right. You know? And so that's kind of what I thought I was going to do too. You know, I I went through a period when I was doing that, I kind of lost interest in jazz for a little while. Um, I just wasn't hearing anything, you know, uh, uh, that really was grabbing me. Right. And, um, and I think part of that was that I was, because with my band, I was exploring guitar pedals and, and, and all the possibilities of sound. And I wasn't really hearing that in jazz at that time, you know, I mean, Pat Metheny was using a a lot of guitar synthesizer and stuff, Mm -hmm. but it was a, you know, it was a, it was a different kind of approach. And, um, and then, uh, and, you know, and, and in high school I did well in, in, in English in particular and languages. And so I thought, Okay, I'll go to university and I'll I'll pr- pursue a bachelor of arts, you know, and and I'll keep the band going. And then, you know, eventually, well, what happened was I was working, um, I was actually working at Wood Gundy. I was a, a messenger, a stock stock and bond messenger. Right. 
which was actually a great job. Uh, if it paid, you know, three times what it paid, I probably would still be doing it. Because <laughs> all you did was, you know, you walked from one building to another with either, you know, with a check in your briefcase or yeah. or some bonds in your briefcase. And then you got there and you sat down in the waiting area and and then you got your stuff. And what I discovered was that by I would keep like novels in, in my suit pocket. And because I was always waiting, like it was always get there, wait 10 minutes, wait 15 minutes. Right. And so I started burning through books. And so it was the most reading I've ever done in my life in, in the two years that I did that job. <laughs> but And I loved literature, and I kind of thought I wanted to be a writer. You know, I, I, I had this idea that I was going to do that. But at a certain point, you know, I was taking, um, I know the exact moment, actually. I can, I can tell you exactly the moment I decided to be a musician. I was taking uh, uh, just art, general arts courses at U of T. Uh, I took, you know, religion and ethics, and I took... Uh, I took this course that I thought was going to be really good. It was under the philosophy department. It was, it was a course in logic. Mm-hmm. And I didn't read the... I should have read the description because... <laughs> That's always a good thing. Yeah, because I thought, oh, logic. I'm a pretty logical guy. It'll be fun. We'll be arguing and you right. know, things like that. And it turned out to be algebra. Like, take take an argument and turn it into an equation, you know. And, and I hated algebra. <laughs> so... I, I thought, man, why am I taking this class? And and at that point, the band started to fall apart a little bit. So, what was going on with the band? Were you playing? We were playing you... like Lee's Palace and the Bamboo, and uh, but mainly locally, not touring. All, all locally, okay. yeah, no touring. And we had just we had done the CFNY song contest, and you know we we were put, getting ready to put out our first single, and then the drummer, you know, decided to get married and quit and and it was basically it was two my you know two of us were left and um and part of me started to feel like I was a lot more serious about music I re I really realized that I was a lot more serious about music than my friends were you know that I, I wanted to get better at it and um and so I was doing this this logic course that I hated and um and then I just kind of had a, a minor epiphany, uh, you know, where I just kind of thought, like, what am I doing? I, I should be at university studying music. You know, this is the thing I really love, right. you know. And it took, you know, so it took me two years after high school. I, you know, I took a year off and worked at Wood Gundy. And, um, and then I went to U of T part time. And, and, but then I was doing this course, which I hated. And so I still remember uh, we, had, uh, we had an exam. And uh, as I was studying for the exam, I just thought, I hate this. <laughs> and so I, you know, the exam the next day was at nine in the morning. And so I set my alarm for 10 and I woke up and I was like, great. I failed, failed the exam, went down to U of T and, with, and said I'm withdrawing, you know, and I, and I got what little money I could get back. And, and then I phoned at that time, York University was the only university in Toronto that was uh, awarding degrees where you could do a degree. And I, I still wanted to go to university and I still wanted to do a degree because I, um, I like academics, you know, and I, and I, I like the idea of doing a university degree. I just didn't want to do it in, in you know, I didn't know what I wanted to do at U of T, but I, I decided I wanted to do it in, in music. So I, I phoned York the next day and said, send me the stuff. And then uh, and then I asked my brother, um, you know, who should I take guitar lessons with because I want to get ready for my audition. Right. And so then I, I took some lessons with Jeff Young, um, and that helped get me ready for my audition at York. But it was funny because even Jeff, because I, re- I started to remember how much jazz I had, I knew. I'd, I'd played a lot of jazz standards with my cousin David. We used to get together and do that after school, and I'd done a lot of the theory already. So 
um, at a certain point after a couple of lessons, uh, Jeff, uh, as he was walking me out the door, he said, you know, you don't need to come back anymore. And, and I was kind of offended. I was like, like, what do you mean? You know, I thought you're, are you firing me as your guitar student? And he said, he said, you know, what you need to do is go buy some records. And I didn't really appreciate what he was saying at the time, but it was, he was right. I did. I had to go buy some records to listen, to listen. Cause he said, you know, you know, all the stuff you got to get the vocabulary. You got to get the sound of it in your, in your head, you know? And, um, so, you know, so when I went to, to York, it was interesting because it was a, um, it was a, it's a great music program in the sense that it was very eclectic and you could do a lot of, you know, you could take Indian music, which I did. Um, but the jazz program was, was very straight ahead. It was a very mainstream, you know, like Hank Mobley, Miles Davis, John Coltrane, like right down, you know, the classics, right. and, which was great. That was a really important thing to, to, for me to learn. Um, the thing that I realized though, was that, um, aesthetically it, it was difficult for me because I was used to the guitar again as this kind of broad palette instrument where you could create all these different sounds and, and really in that world, it, it was get a nice warm sound and it's all about what you play, not about the sounds that you generate, you know? But then I started to hear people like John Schofield and Bill Frizzell, and I'd heard Schofield years before, but I hadn't really thought about it in the same way. But I started to hear what, what they were doing with uh, Mark Johnson's bass desires. And, and then in Toronto, I would go out and see, you know, my brother was playing with Barry Romberg and, and my teacher, Jeff Young, and Ted Quinlan. Um, and they were, they were all exploring sounds, you know. And, uh, and then I finally clued in that it's like, oh, yeah, okay, I can, I can learn this vocabulary and play jazz. And then if I want... I can broaden the broaden the palette, you know. And if we if we go back yeah. to that audition, um, what is that like? Well, like what happens when you go and audition to get into a music program? Uh, well, at York at that time, um, you had to you had to play two contrasting pieces of music of your choosing. So I chose. Uh, I did a. Jeff Young had given me a like a solo chord arrangement of. Uh, it was a Cole Porter tune. I think it was Everything I Love. Uh, you think I remember, but I don't completely remember. Um, and But I do remember the second piece that I played, because uh, I teach it. I make all my students do it. And it was the Bach Violin Concerto, you know, the double in... No, sorry, I did the, the one in A minor. Wow. Yeah. And uh, and I remember uh, Casey Sokol, who was auditioning me, he, he was really knocked out that I had chosen to do that. He's like, wow, I've never had a guitar player come in playing the Bach Violin Concerto. And I just wanted to show that I could read music, and um, and I really love Bach. And, and reading and music, where did you learn that from? I learned right from the outset. Um, luckily, I mean, aside from you know junior high playing the clarinet, um, Carlos Lopez, my guitar teacher, he made me learn to read right away. And and um, you know there there were these Berkeley series of guitar books uh, by this guy William Levitt that had all these. You know, it was all written out. There was no no tablature. Right. So I had to learn to read, and I'm so glad, you know, because, um, you know, I couldn't run a big band if I didn't know how to read music. I couldn't write for the other ensembles that I, I write for if, if I couldn't read music. So Okay, so when you can write, read music like you can, yeah. can you just look at the notes and in your head, can you hear what's going on? A lot of it, not everything. I know people who are like, 
so deep with that stuff that I, I'd, I'd be embarrassed to put myself next to them. You know, I remember when I when I, I took composition at, at York uh, with a great composer named James Tenney. And um, and he had James Tenney was American. He had come up with people like uh, Philip Glass and Steve Reich. And then he'd moved to Toronto and he, he was very active here. Um, and uh, he eventually when he retired from York, moved back to California, but he, uh, he was a, a great composer, but he was also, I mean, he, he was astounding because he, he could look at, he'd make us write a, you know, a contemporary piece of music, lots of chromaticism, frayed instruments, whatever. And he'd look at it and he would sing every part to you. And I can't do that. So I'd be like, Whoa. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah. Okay. I, so the other question, and it's come up a few times in the show, but, that I'm curious about is the difference between musicians who can read um, and just play it perfectly right. off the cuff yeah. versus people who can improvise. And a lot of people, a lot of classically trained musicians can Can't read off improvise. and cannot improvise at yeah. all. Um, you are able to do both. Yeah. A lot of people are. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Not, you're not the only one, but, <laughs> but you're one of the few people I know who can yeah. do both very easily, I presume. What's the difference What's the different approach you take under both circumstances? Well, I think improvising is, you know, I think it, it I think it's something you just have to, you know, you have to get the chance to do it. And I right. think the problem for a lot of classical music pedagogy is that just people never get the chance to do it. Um, Would it be correct that you might have started more as an improviser than as somebody who reads? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Uh, because even as, you know, while I was learning to read music and going through those guitar you know, exercise books, I was, you know, I was learning, you know, I was putting uh, Won't Get Fooled Again on my turntable and learning by ear all the P-Towns and right. guitar parts or listening to Steve Ray Vaughan and lifting his licks, which is what blues musicians have always done is, right. you know, you listen to somebody else and you figure out how to do it. And I still think that that's the best thing you can do. And, and the same is true of jazz. You know, most jazz musicians can read music especially these days i'd say everybody pretty much can you know um but everybody learns to to very quickly you know learn melodies by ear play along with recordings and uh, you know i think that that is really important because that's how you learn all the the things that are hard to notate right. you know the idiomatic things um you know the dialects you do you know? have a preference um yeah i mean i i like improvising uh, you know i i, I am happiest when i'm improvising music for sure right um, but it must be something else when you have a big band or something and everybody's reading and it's just clicking yeah and... well i mean the you know the notation is just a means to an end right it's just a way right. of getting a bunch of different musicians to play the same thing at the you know at the same time <laughs> you know and it allows you you know you can't you know you can't improvise really ambitious things like you know beethoven's fifth or something like that i mean right. you know that that's not going to happen so, you know, the beauty of notation is that one person, you know, the reason I ended up starting a big band was really much, very much out of that idea, you know, that, that, that something can come out of your brain and you can put it in front of people and it turns into this magical thing. You know, when I was, uh, when I was at York, um, I had never thought about doing, having a big band at all. It was the furthest thing from my mind. Right. And then, um, after I finished my third year at York, I went out to the Banff Center for the Arts, uh, which had a, continues to have a very prestigious like workshop, four-week workshop. And they would attract musicians from all over the world, really good 
jazz players. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and I went out there and, uh, I went there twice. I went once in 1991 and once in 1993. And when I went the first time, you know, I kind of went there thinking that I was one of the better players at York and it was really great because I got there and I was totally humbled. Like people were kicking my ass left, right, and center. Like, okay, so when that were, happens, people do were you know, so much better than me. Do you know immediately? Like, like. Well, yeah, you look at what people are able to do very quickly, or the the kinds of things that they're able to improvise on, the kinds of harmony that doesn't bother them, and uh, and how quickly they grab grasp things, you know, rhythmic things, and. And I just realized I had a lot to learn, you know, and which is great. I mean, it's that's an important I've taken that lesson forward my whole life, you right. know, the rest of my career. We all have we all ideally we never stop learning, you know, um, but that was really good for me. It was a bit depressing, uh, uh, to be honest. I, you know, I kind of got bummed out at a certain point. I was like, man, you know, like, there's so much more to do. But the good thing was that it inspired me to write some music, you know, Um and because everyone at Banff was writing music and, you know, very few, very few of the musicians that went there the year that I was there wanted to play jazz standards, maybe at a late night, at the late night jam session or something. But for the most part, everyone was like writing music. And at York, I wasn't really getting I was doing some composing, like I was studying composition, but I wasn't doing any jazz writing because mm -hmm. the jazz program was very much about learning the standards songbook. So I had no outlet for exploring really my jazz writing. I had started to write some things. And in fact, that's kind of how I got into Banff was because at the audition, I played two original things. And Hugh Fraser, who was the artistic director, he was really impressed with what I was writing. And he said, you got to come. So so it was good that way. Um, but when I was in, in Banff, I uh, I heard Kenny, the trumpet player, Kenny Wheeler's um music for you know his big band he had, he had just released a a record called music for large and small ensembles and uh it was so beautiful and so different from what i from what my preconceptions of what a big band should sound like are you know or were mm -hmm. um and uh and he used the guitar beautifully you know he had john abercrombie's you know these like weaving lines and some of them improvised, some of them notated. The guitar was actually playing melodies. And because that's what I didn't like about big bands. The guitar was generally never featured as a melodic instrument. It was always kind of, it might get a solo, it might play some chords, maybe double a melody. But it doesn't. It wasn't really a core element. And, right. and it, I felt that in Kenny Wheeler's writing it was. So... Um, so when I went to fourth year at York, they David Mott was teaching a, a jazz orchestra composition class, and I thought, oh, I want to take that. So I so I, I took that, and uh, and my friend Paul Newfeld did the same. And uh, our final assignment was to uh, we had to compose a a piece for a, you know a fifteen piece jazz orchestra, ten minute piece for jazz orchestra, and uh, and I just remember that. Because at the time, there was no computer software. I didn't have any, you know, I think there might have been some very early versions of it, but you had to write by hand, right? right. You had to, it had to, out of your brain, you know, you had to write it, write a score in, in pencil and then, and then write out all the parts by hand, which took forever. Um, and I still remember, you know, that morning in the spring where we, you know, he had assembled a group to play our pieces and, you know, so going and handing out all the parts and then they count it in, and suddenly there's this sound, 
that you've never heard. I'd never, you know, the sound I'd never heard before, but it came out of my brain. You know, it's like, <laughs> it's like, wow, I wrote this down. We handed it to these 15 musicians and this sound, it was magic, you know, and I was hooked. Um, so, and Paul Neufeld had the same experience as me. So, um, you know, uh, about a year later we, we were talking and, and we were kind of like thinking, wow, we're never going to hear that ever again unless we started our own group. So we, you know, we had this idea of like, we had no ideas in terms of like it being a long-term project. We just thought, you know, let's call some musicians, see if we can put a little big band together maybe every couple of months and just, it'll give us incentive to write some music. And I think we were both thinking the idea was that other people would eventually play our music, you know, but we started to do that. And, and, uh, over the course of a year, uh, a lineup evolved, you know, of people who seemed to like what we were doing. And, and it was an interesting experience because there were people who did not like what we we're doing. Cause I was writing in odd meters sometimes, you know, and, there were some straight ahead jazz players that didn't want to play in seven, four or whatever, right. you know? And, um, but we started to, to, to form a group and, uh, uh, we ended up, we did a CBC, uh, back in the days when CBC would record things, right. you know, we, we did a CBC <laughs> recording and that became a demo for a Canada council grant that became our first record. And, and that uh, won you a Juno. And that was our first Juno. Yeah. yeah, and that was so, and that happened very quickly. You know, we graduated in 1992, and uh, and then we recorded. You know, Nojo had its first gig in 1994, and we recorded in '95, and 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 then that album won a Juno in the spring of '96. So yeah, things happened pretty fast. Do you, I mean, you had the advantage of having a brother who was, I presume, successful in the music industry mm -hmm. or playing and yeah. doing various things. Yeah. So you knew somewhat what. A musician's life would be or could be yeah yeah but when you went to york what did you hope to accomplish or get out of that experience of um, studying music well it's an interesting thing i mean you know my main motivation because i was 21 when i went so i was a little older than you know i didn't go right out of high school right so i'd had time to think about it um and i thought that uh Mainly, I just wanted to learn about music. I just decided there were there were some there was more to it than what I had been doing playing in my new wave band, and so I wanted you know I kind of thought, okay, maybe if I you know go there and get my stuff together, I'll become like a uh, a music a guitar player that people will call to do to be a sideman, you know, right. and you know playing jazz or or playing in those musical theater shows or. Um, and, you know, the funny thing is that uh, uh, at, when I look back on it and what I tell people, you know, when I talk to young people about university, the stuff that really m changed my life, you know, going to school was the stuff I didn't expect to study. So, you know, taking a course with Triki Shankaran and Indian music and South Indian music, um, I'm not a diehard, like I didn't go deep. Some of my friends went really deep into that world. Right. But... Just being exposed to it over the course of one year was life-changing. You know, my whole thought process about rhythm and how you think about rhythm and just getting comfortable with odd meters really owes a lot to that. And, uh, um, you know, we're studying composition with James Tenney. I didn't go to York thinking I was going to study, you know, like contemporary composition, you know, with a great composer. Um, 
And starting with, you know, doing the jazz orchestra with David Mott, you know, he was a great teacher because he, although he showed you the models of how Ellington wrote um, or how Gil Evans wrote something, you know, his whole thing was that there's no right or wrong. There's just context. And that always stuck with me. Like, yeah, there's no right or wrong. There's mm. just the context, you know. And certainly with our big man, the whole idea was that we could change the context. You know, that was, that was our whole thing. But um, the funny thing is, yeah, I thought I was going to come out of there like a first call guitar player. You know, people would call me to back them up. But then, uh, you know, it's funny. When I went to, uh, the second time I went to Banff, um, Steve Coleman, uh, was a New York saxophone player, and he was known for kind of starting a whole kind of little movement around contemporary jazz that um, was generally not in 4-4 time and um, was kind of stretching things, you know, rhythmically and harmonically. Mm-hmm. He said, uh, I remember all the faculty kind of had to give a talk about their lives, and, and he said, you know, the moment that you decide to start your own group, be, be prepared for the phone to stop ringing. <laughs> And, you know, and what he what he meant was like, you know, that he had been playing in lots of straight ahead situations, you know, but the moment he started his kind of M bass kind of collective, everyone presumed that he didn't want to play any other kind of music anymore, that he just wanted to do his own thing or that he wasn't, you know, he was no longer in the other club, you know, and and that happens, you know, and that happened to me, like certainly with Nojo. Uh, with the big band, you know, I remember running into, um, you know, one of my old teachers and, and them saying, oh, so are you still playing the guitar? I hear you, you know, you just, you started this big band, you know, you're not playing the guitar anymore. And I was like, um, no, I play the guitar in the big band, you know, <laughs> and I was still doing other gigs and I was still teaching, you know, but it kind of, it kind of rattled me a little bit. I thought, okay. But I kind of understood, you know, everyone Everyone thought, okay, this person is totally dedicated to this project, so they're not available, or they must not be interested in my other projects, you know, and the music business is very cliquey that way, and, and uh, I mean, I've been fortunate, I've been able to do a little bit of musical theater, um, and when I was, you know, really scuffling, I did a five-month tour with an Andrew Lloyd Webber show through the United States, just because I needed the money, and, and uh you know, and, and I've done some subbing on shows like The Lion King and, and stuff, but I, I don't really live in that world, and, and there are musicians that do, and and, they're, and I think to stay in that world, you kind of have to indicate to the contractors that, yeah, I love this gig, I'm not going anywhere kind of thing, you right. know, because from the contractor's perspective, it's the path of least resistance, it's, you know, let's hire, let's hire the guitar player who we know loves doing these shows and will right. always do them. People like me are not so appealing because they know we're putting out records and that we like promoting them or touring them and playing that music and and you uh, want to improvise. Yeah, and you want and it, it's true that it, you know after a while it's hard to do those shows for me because you know I really want to adapt the parts or change you know improve them because <laughs> the goal is to be the same every the, night. The goal right? is to be absolutely the same every night. So much so that when you're a sub, you know you have to sound like the person you're subbing for who has to sound like the person on the original cast recording you know right so from disney's you know perspective they want it totally consistent if the show's in toronto or atlanta or los angeles it has to sound exactly the same and so and that's the gig i mean that that is the gig you know when you when you take it you know it's you can't complain you're you're getting paid and and that's the gig the gig is play play this music and sound like this i presume they get paid pretty good 
Um, yeah, musical theater plays, plays yeah. quite well. Yeah. So having gone through the new wave scene and knowing what that could, what that paid. Which was least, yeah, least Palace did not pay particularly. <laughs> okay, but, but I presume choosing jazz is not an easy path either. And also to say, like when you say big band, the first thing I come, I, comes to my mind is, God, that's got to be expensive. Yeah, well, yeah, I was just going to joke and say, yeah, of course, I didn't just choose jazz. I chose a jazz orchestra, which is about the stupidest thing you could do <laughs> financially. Um, you know, the thing, the funny thing is that um, most jazz orchestras in the world survive one of two ways. One, they survive by the goodwill of the musicians who play in them mm-hmm. because they believe in they believe in the group and they right. want it to work. So, you know, the people who are doing Maria Schneider's big band in New York on a when that was going on a weekly basis, they were not make, walking out of there with a lot of a lot of money, but they believed in 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 the in the thing, and you know they helped her br- build up her brand, you know, and to the point where she can tour all over the place, and and I think that's generally the story, you know. Right. It's it's not that different from indie rock, you know. Yeah, you you're you believe in the music, and you hope that you get to the point where you're getting invited to festivals and eventually concerts or whatever. Um, you know, and then the other way is, you know, we're lucky in Canada that there's arts funding. And so certainly with, with Nojo, like the idea of making some of the records we made would have been really hard to do without grant funding. You know, they're, it's expensive because, you know, the idea is hopefully when you go in the studio, you're, you're going to pay the musicians. That's right. the one time in their, you know, in the, the career of the band, hopefully everyone's getting paid. Right. But even so, you know, if you take 15, 16, 17 musicians and you pay them for three days in the studio and rehearsals, that's that adds up really really fast you know it's not the studio cost it's the it's the personnel cost you know and um and even then when i look back I, the guys were so supportive they they you know we they never ever made as much as they deserved i don't think you know um but we were lucky i mean we we got invited to some really nice festivals and we did get to tour and got to record with some some of our heroes you know um we had always uh, at a certain point after we did our first couple of records, we had wanted to, uh, uh, we thought, well, what should we do next? And, and our idea was that we would um, try to reach out to some of our heroes and see if they would come and play with us. And so, you know, luckily we got some grant money to do that and we invited Don Byron up to play with us. And uh, we had a week at the top of the Senator and that was a blast. That was so much fun. And, and, for us, he was a musician that we really admired, and there he was playing with us, you know. Mm-hmm. And then we did the same with Joe Lovano and Ray Anderson and Sam Rivers, and um, and we got to tour with Don Byron quite a bit. And um, you know, so we, you know, that was all such a great experience. And I learned so much about writing music, and that was really why we put the band together was that so Paul and I could learn how to write, you know. Um, but eventually, you know, um, I did. Uh, well, a couple of things happened. Paul, you know, he he had a family, and uh, so his energy waned a little bit, and uh, and I tried to keep that energy up at the, you know, for both of us. But uh, you know, I um, I did a, a record in two thousand of called the Songs of Bruce Coburn, where I took all these Bruce Coburn songs right. and and did, made a jazz album out of it, and um, that that I think was a turning point for me. Um, I think I learned a lot about my guitar playing and how I, I, I still don't, you know, you know, I had graduated from York in 92 and I think until I did that Bruce Coburn record, I hadn't figured out how I wanted to play the guitar yet. 
and and I don't mean how to play the guitar. Right, I mean, right. but but what my voice was going to be. I think I was still trying to reconcile all my different influences and uh, figure out, you know, how not to sound like people because, you know, that was. Yeah. It's kind part, of interesting. That's you part say of the this. trick too, right? Is like yeah. you're trying to figure out how do I. I like Bill Frizzell, but I don't want to sound, I don't want people to say, oh, you sound just like Bill Frizzell, you know, or I like Jeff Beck, but I don't want people to say you sound just like Jeff Beck. So you're trying to, you know, and, and it took me a long time to figure out that the way to do that was absorb all those things and then forget, forget that you have absorbed those things and hopefully it works out, you know. <laughs> but it's interesting you say that, um, that you found your own sound or your own playing on an album that you kind of playing all cover songs, yeah. Right? Like or, yeah. Or, but also the other thing is, if I'm not mistaken, Bruce Coburn was on that album as well. He's on. It? He's on one song. Yeah. Yeah. So that must have been kind of intimidating or. It weird. was. Yeah. It was. Um, yeah. You know, I had loved Bruce's music for a long since the '80s, um, and uh, he's a great guitar player. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't play anything like him. Uh, you know, so so there was that. That was that was actually kind of a blessing. Right. You know, but if I'm not mistaken, wasn't it Bernie Finkelstein, his manager, who kind of yeah. approached you and said, "Yeah, he, he like he heard some some songs that you were doing." And yeah, well, because what what had happened was that Nojo had gotten signed to True North Records right. before we did the record with Don Byron, um, and because Bernie had he had put out um, some he'd got the rights to some Lenny Bro tapes, right. uh, and that Randy Bachman had. You know, like Cabin Fever, I think was the name of the record, and um, and so he put that out, and and you know, Bernie's a fan of music, mm-hmm. and so he just thought, you know, I wouldn't mind putting out a little more jazz, and you know, he was not naive; he knew he wasn't going to make any any money from it. You know, I think his perspective was like, well, we won't we won't lose too much either, right? <laughs> so, um, and so he he signed us, and uh, so one of the great perks. Uh, other than having a record, you know, it really helped. We noticed immediately how many more reviews and stuff we got. Right. Um, but uh, one of the great perks was that we could, because our office was on Richmond Street, and uh, you could just drop in, say hi. Bernie was always, if he wasn't in a meeting, he was always happy to have you sit there and chat with him for, you know, about yeah. music just in general. And and I still have those chats with Bernie sometimes. We go out for lunch and, you know, just, just hang out as friends. But... Um, but one of the, one of the nice things was they had this, you know, this big kind of, uh, metal cabinet that was just full of promotional copies of CDs. And, and so, you know, you'd walk by there and, and Bernie or one of the other staff would go, Oh, do you have this record? You know, and then you would take it. So, um, you know, I hadn't really, I had really listened to Bruce a lot in the eighties around, you know, rocket launcher and that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And then I, you know, I got busy being a jazz guy and I, I kind of stopped really paying attention other than to, other than what was on the radio so um you know uh i checked out a record called nothing but a burning light which i just thought was just a beautiful beautiful record and um so i started playing a couple of tunes from that record because what i was doing because i by that point even with my small i had a little quartet and but i was writing music for it so i wasn't doing standards and so i always felt the the way the writing the original writing was that um it was always i could do some standards but i always felt more more happy when i would do like a a police tune or something 
and throw it into the set. And I mm. felt that people reacted to it well, you know. Um, and so I started doing some Bruce Coburn tunes. And uh, um, Bernie uh, heard me. He came out to see me at the pilot. And I think we did Lovers in a Dangerous Time or Rocket Launcher, one of those songs. And um, and then he said, yeah. He said, oh, I really, I've never heard anyone do that with Bruce's music. Would you let you know, would you consider recording a couple of them and as a demo? And, and so I, I did, he gave us a little seed money and we went and recorded them and we recorded four tunes, I think. And, uh, and he said, yeah, I think this would make a great album. Do you want to do the album? And, uh, I said, okay, well, I said, I'll do the album on the condition that you play these demos for Bruce and that Bruce likes them. And so I got word that Bruce gave it the thumbs up and I thought, okay, great. And then, you know, it was produced by Jonathan Goldsmith, who had produced uh, Bruce's records in the 80s. And uh, so, you know, we called Bruce and asked him to come down and play on one tune. But, but yeah, it was, it was you know, I think it was a blessing that I, did, I wasn't a fingerstyle guitar player. <laughs> so, because it freed me from even thinking that I might sound like Bruce. Right. You know, I knew I wasn't going to play those tunes like Bruce. And uh, so then the challenge was, how do you, how do you take songs that are all about the words and strip out the words and still make them the song and how do you make those songs your own how do you put your own stamp on it so i learned a lot about arranging and uh and about how i wanted to play you know and about how i wanted to use sounds so i think that record is kind of where i i like to say that i think that record is where i learned to play the guitar like i play the guitar now right so you said something that just caught my ear, which was when, when Bernie approached you and said, well, maybe we can do, I don't know if it's correct to say, a jazz album of Bruce Coburn songs, but an interpretation of Bruce Coburn songs done by you. And you said that he knew there wasn't a lot of money in this. Like he wasn't going to be a massive seller. So how do you, how do you approach that? Because obviously money is important in terms of making a living and eating yeah. and paying mortgage yeah. or whatever. But um, as we were talking about the new wave scene or the jazz scene, it's a, music is difficult. Yeah. So does, does money ever come into the thought process of this would be commercially successful or not? Not on any of the records I've done. Um, <laughs> I wish. <laughs> but that's not the... Um, I'm not too proud to make money, by the way. You know? <laughs> um, no, I... Uh, you know, the, the thing with me is that I've always done, alongside my creative projects, I've always done commercial projects. So... I, you know, I, although it's been a long time since I did musical theater, I used to do some of those gigs. Right. Um, I have a band called Grooveyard that, you know, we were kind of, it's a funk R&B band that we started for fun because it was a friend of mine. A friend of mine used to put these big parties together and he said, you know, can you put a band together? And um, and it was just a fun outlet for for Paul Newfeld and I and, and uh, our friend Lester McLean, who's a great singer. Um but eventually, people started hiring us to do their parties, do corporate gigs, do weddings. Right. So that band paid my mortgage for a long time. You know, it's it's the band still exists. We're not as active as, as we were. But for the longest time, it was kind of like, okay, Grooveyard is paying my mortgage. And my jazz projects are, you know, hopefully self-sustaining, you know. Right. Um, and then, you know, and then eventually, uh, you know, I've always taught a little bit. You know, I always did, when I was younger, I, I would teach at, like, guitar studios, you know, doing, like, one-on-one -on -one guitar lessons. Now I teach part-time at uh, 
Centennial College. I teach part-time at Humber. I teach uh, adult jazz workshops at the Royal Conservatory. So those things kind of supplement, you know. Um, I, I, I think that if you're going to make a living as a musician, you need to be flexible mm-hmm. and you need to do a lot of different things. Right. And, and, and also, you know, I, I always think you kind of you have to put your energy, you know, where the water's flowing downhill. And, 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 and that's really what happened with my small group projects kind of took over from Nojo, partly because it was just the, the momentum seemed to be going, you know, so when we did that way. Right. So, you know, you kind of have to, you know, you have to pick, you only have so much energy. So you might as well go where, you know, where the, the, the where the resistance is least, I guess, you know. And so when we did that Bruce Coburn record, you know, suddenly I did a lot of touring, you know, um, not just festivals. We did a lot of the festivals, but off-season touring, like doing, you know, like there's a little club circuit you can do in Canada. And, and so I started to get to know presenters in Western Canada in particular. And I've been going to Western Canada pretty much every year since then to do a, some kind of tour, you know. And uh, in, in the last five years, it's been crazy. I've been out there a lot, so much that people well, are... You just got back recently. I, yeah, yeah, I did this. In the last calendar year, I've been out four times. So five times sorry so you know um with different projects you know that i play in and um yeah you know it's yeah i mean the, the, this year people were joking they're like why don't you just buy a summer home out here <laughs> it's like yeah maybe so uh, when you talk about different projects because it's like if you go to your website the number of different bands you're involved with or projects yeah. you're involved with is astounding <laughs> Um, I don't know how many of them are immediately active or whatever, but it's... It goes in waves, each one. Yeah, yeah. but it's, it's... So I wonder, and sometimes I think, okay, is this because... I don't know if it's necessity, uh, as much as you have so many different ideas that you want to do, yeah. and you can only do with so many different musicians or formations or whatever. W- w- yeah, I get restless. Uh, I, I, I never like to do the same project twice. Right. Not really. I mean, you know, which is why even with the big band, you know, we had different guests come in because right. that changed the parameters. Um, you know, I'm a big believer in the idea that um, th- that parameters, having some restrictions as your challenge are the things that foster the creativity. So I always do best if somebody says, can you write X and Y, you know, and then I, I'm like, yeah, I, that's great. That's a challenge. So Bruce Coburn, that was a challenge. It was like, how do you take somebody who's got 25 records, turn it into a single album? How do you pick the songs? How do you arrange them? Um, and, you know, and that's why I ended up doing the Sicilian project as mm-hmm. well, you know, um, because I, uh, I realized I, I, I enjoyed that process with the Bruce Coburn record. I enjoyed that process of like, here's the parameters. And so when I was kind of thinking about what I wanted to do next... Um, you know, the one music, as I looked at my career at that point, you know, in the, in the two thousands, the one music I had avoided my entire life was, was Italian music or Sicilian music. You know, my parents were from Sicily, you know, when I was, you know, when I was a young musician, um, you know, my dad would, you know, occasionally see me playing the guitar and be like, Hey, do you want to play an Italian song? And I'd be like, uh, I gotta go, you know, uh, you know, which I regret now, you know, right. like I would have been, uh, you know, if I could go back in time, I would love to accompany my dad singing something, you know. Um, did you grow up with that music? 
No, not really. Okay. I mean, I grew up with it in the sense that it was unavoidable. Like we went to Italian weddings right, right, and right. you heard it. Um, you know, my, my parents were pretty eclectic though. Like, the, you know, it wasn't like they sat at home listening to Sicilian folk music. They didn't. My dad was much more into the, like, uh, Pavarotti, you know, right. even if he was doing the Neapolitan songs like, uh, Turno Sorrento or O Sole Mio or whatever. Um, but, uh, you know, but he liked Tony Bennett and stuff like that too. Mm. Right. Um, but, um, you know, I, uh, but I, I was like, wow, I've done gigs playing reggae. I've done gigs playing Indian music. I've, you know, done, done gigs playing African music. I, you know, I like all this American music. Um, why, you know, why, why have I avoided this? And, and I didn't really think about it until I, I, um, I went to Sicily in two thousand when my daughter, my first daughter, was born in two thousand and three, and and uh, when she was three months old, we went to we went to uh, Nojo. Actually, had a gig in Amsterdam at a festival, and so we, my wife and I, decided to take our our new daughter and go to the festival in, in the Netherlands, and then um, and then go down to Sicily to visit my my cousins because I hadn't been down. It had been a long time since uh, I'd been there, and and so I thought, well, let's go down and you know hang out and because my wife was on maternity leave and it was January and I had nothing going on in Toronto and um and so we were there and and um I just I realized because my parents passed away in the in in the mid 90s so you know I realized that um the one thing I did do with my parents was spoke to them in their dialect in their Sicilian dialect and uh without them around of course I wasn't speaking that language Mm -hmm. with anybody and so suddenly being in Sicily and, you know, most of, well, all of my parents' siblings were still alive. So, um, so seeing my aunts and uncles and speaking to them and I realized this, wow, like there's a whole part of my brain that's dedicated to this language that I don't get to use, you know, it was interesting, right? Mm-hmm. Cause, and especially cause they spoke a dialect. So it wasn't like you spoke, if I, if I go to Florence, I don't speak what my parents spoke. Right. You know, and even now if I go to Modica, which is the city they're from, if I speak the way my parents spoke, people, their jaws drop because they're kind of like, how do you speak this archaic Sicilian? Like with an American accent. Right. It makes no sense, <laughs> yeah. right? Like I might as well be saying, you know, thou, you know, like, you know, it's, it's, right. it's like they look at me like, w- w- you know, wow. But they get a kick out of it, you know. Um, but anyways, I realized I had this, this language that I wasn't using and uh, and also maybe it was the birth of my daughter, but I kind of thought I, I'd like to find a, some way to connect her to her grandparents who aren't around anymore. And so I started thinking, I wonder if I could do with Sicilian music what I'd done with Bruce Coburn's music. And uh, but I didn't want to do all the the hits. Mm-hmm. You know, I didn't want to do I didn't want to do that. Right. So I was like, how do you avoid that? And then when I got back to Canada, well, what two things happened when I was in so while I was there, I, I met some local musicians and I said, uh, I, and I, it was just an inkling of an idea. It was just, but I said, you know, is there any cool folk music from right from here, from this city? And people started to give me recordings, you know? And so I took those back to Toronto. And, and then when I got back, just by absolute coincidence, my brother Roberto had been somewhere where he'd seen a Smithsonian Folksways collection. And it was all recordings that Alan Lomax, uh, the American musicologist had made, in Sicily wow. in 1954, which is a year after my mom and two of my siblings were born there. So that was the year after they left. So I thought, wow, that's amazing. You know, Lomax 
was documenting the place my parents left at mm-hmm. the time that they left. And so I started going through those Lomax recordings, and, and that kind of became the basis of, of what became the Sicilian Jazz Project. And uh, and that big, took on a whole, you know, yeah. that surprised me with the life it took on. Again, it was just a project that I wasn't sure wasn't sure with the with the you know how long it would exist but i i'd say of all the things i've done that's the one i've probably toured the most and played the most and does it still have a life that... it does have a life um it's it's a little quiet right now mm-hmm. um because i did it a lot and uh we did a i guess the last record was in 2015 and i started working with this singer from rome named uh she goes by pilar her name's ilaria patasini and so, and she's got a beautiful voice and, mm-hmm. and, uh, even though she's not Sicilian, she, she could sing in the dialect and, but she's a great singer. And I, I, I just, when I heard her voice, I thought I want to work with this singer because I had been working like locally, it would been with, uh, Miriam Taller, who's great. Um, she's of Egyptian background. So she was doing the, the language phonetically mm-hmm. and Dominic Mancuso, who's a great singer, but, uh, but Ilaria was you know the real deal and uh, you know an italian who could sing classical music and you know this great range of her voice and and you know and she has a real magnetism on stage as well so we toured a lot and um so now she's coming to kerner hall in november she's got a, her own gig at kerner hall november 9th and um i'm i'm her md so i'm i'm MDing that and that that will be doing her music but we're going to start working on a new project together but it won't be sicilian music probably uh, which her idea is she would like to do some Canadian songs translated into Italian. Hmm. So I'm going to help her with that. Um, yeah, this is something I'll come back. Uh, you know, I, I, we, we, we still do the odd gig. We, you know, we did a gig. It's been a, we did a festival last year. So it's probably been about a year since we did anything. Um, but everything goes, in, yeah, you know, it, it, it's partly because, yeah, I have other projects I want to do, you know, and, um, you know, like in June, I recorded a new record with my group in Orbit, and I gave you the mm-hmm. the previous CD that just came out last year, and that's with Felix Pistorius on bass and Jeff Coffin from the Dave Matthews Band on saxophone and Davide Dorenzo and a great p- piano player named Tom Reynolds, who's here in Toronto, but he was living in Nashville for a long time. That's how Jeff Coffin knew him. So, uh, and it's this amazing quintet of Canadians and Americans and. Uh, it, the the the, we, the the way we improvise and play together is pretty magical, and uh, I have to say it, it it really brings out the best in my playing. It pushes uh, every time I play with those guys. I feel like I get pushed to a right. a better place, you know, and which is really nice. Um, it's nice to still have that feeling of you know like okay wow you know that those guys kick me over here you know and yeah. so that band is challenging to tour because Jeff. Coffin plays in the Dave Matthews Band, so they're on the road constantly. Constantly, yeah. um, so we're trying to figure out how we can gig. But um, so we recorded that in June. Um, we're mixing it right now, and then Elizabeth Shepard and I went into the studio in June out in Banff when we were touring out, out west. We went in for a couple of days, and um, she and I have I've been touring a lot with her. Uh, she was on my John Lennon project, and. Uh, I've been touring her original music for the last five years, and um, but in between all that, we've done a lot of duo gigs, and uh, we've kind of realized we have a pretty good duo repertoire. Um, last year, we were in Italy, and we did a bunch of gigs as a duo, and it was pretty magical. And uh, so we thought, let's go in the studio and record 
what we do as a duo um and uh just assorted songs you know um and uh but in as well as that we're also working on a new project of taking some poetry and setting it to music so <laughs> doing that so like that's tons that's of three projects in that i'm working on right now yeah that you know of <laughs> yeah yeah but are, are there other than these three are there like tons of other projects that's just sitting in your head that well, i can only you know like it's funny because i was describing this to my wife in the car yesterday i said because so, i we, we were talking about our you know i try not to it scares me a little bit to think two years ahead but I'm saying to my wife, like, okay, well, so Elizabeth and I have a record coming out. In Orbit, I'll have a record coming out. And then Elizabeth and I work on this poetry project. And um, and then Pilar is coming in November, and we'll probably start working on this Canadian right. Songs in Italian project. And those are my projects, you know, that I have on the go. And so that could that's looks like a two-year a two-year plan right no there, but is it easy right to there. schedule things to say okay no so it's hard it's hard it's, it's like which one it's hard to know which one to prioritize and you know i mean i you know and then usually what happens is you you put out some feelers to some festivals or some concert presenters and the one that clicks kind of jumps up to the, the right. front of the queue right and you say okay this is the one that has legs right now so let's do that but amongst all that, you know, I play in this um, this Indian kind of fusion group called Avatar with a saxophone player, uh, Sundar Viswanathan. And uh, so he's got a tour of Canada in October. Elizabeth's going to Poland in September. Uh, in Orbit's supposed to tour in Canada in the end of January, beginning of February. And then I, and right now I need to decide who I, which projects I'm likely to do festivals with in the summer. Wow. So. So yeah, it does, you know, and it's challenging from a family perspective too. You know, my family's, I have three kids um, and generally we've always tried to make a vacation out of one of my tours, you know, so if I'm going to be in Western Canada, we tack on two weeks at the end and right. that becomes a vacation or, um, you know, or if it's a run out, if I go to Ottawa for a weekend, they come and, and we enjoy Ottawa together and, um you know, two years ago we went to Europe, and Elizabeth Shepherd had some gigs in Europe, so that worked out well, and we did some things together, and because um, that's really important to me, you know, is that um, that you know I don't want to be an absent father. Yeah, I, yeah. I'm really around when I'm around, and and I'm really involved with my kids, um, and the kids are a big part of the projects. You know, like my son, who's just turned thirteen, he he named about half the songs on the new In Orbit records. So. <laughs> Is he is he musical? Yeah, they're all musical. Um, I'm not I'm not sure if they'll all become musicians, but they're all musical. Um, okay, my, if they did decide that they wanted to pursue music, yeah. how would you feel and what would you tell them? Oh, I'd be really proud, of course. You know, um, you know, I kind of feel like um, it's a funny thing, but you know, I, I'm one of three brothers who all played music. I have a first cousin, David, who's a musician, so I I feel like this is that's a wonderful thing you know mm -hmm. i think that's pretty amazing and i feel like you know i don't know to whatever degree there's a genetic component if we've got it great you know let's pass it on you know um so you know my oldest daughter plays violin she's in high school and uh she's great she's got really good ears i don't i don't know if you know it's up to her what she wants to do with that um my son's 13 he's a he's probably the jazz musician in the family 
Yeah, I mean, he is. He's 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 learning all of Oscar Peterson Night Train on the piano right now. <laughs> he's a very good he's a very good thirteen year old piano player, uh, but he plays the bass as well. And he's just started playing upright bass. My brother's just given him a bass to 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 play on, and so who knows, you know? Uh, but he's he he uh, he reminds me of myself in the sense that that um, he he really feels compelled to practice. You know, like he he sees when he walks by the piano, he plays the piano. You know. And I was a bit like that with the guitar, you know. Uh, I used to not be able to let a day go by without playing the guitar. You right. know? I, now I do lots of days without playing the guitar. But uh, And then my youngest uh, sings and plays the piano, and maybe she'll be a singer. I don't know. You know, we could use a singer. But uh, but they'll love it. I, I'm just happy they all love music. You know, uh, you know I, the one thing I've tried to tell them is that, you know, it, my parents loved music, but they were... Uh, and they were very proud of, of, of what I was doing, but they, you know, it, it, they weren't sure whether it encouraged me to do it or whether it encouraged me to do something else. And, mm. you know, the one thing I, I want my kids to do is just dream big. You know, if they like something, whatever it is, go for it. You know, because uh, I think I saw, you know, J- Jim Carrey talking about, you know, the comedian talking about his dad who was a saxophone player but became a, an accountant and hated it for mm-hmm. his whole life. You know, we're all going to fail at various things. You might as well fail at the thing you love. Did you ever question the path you chose? Yeah, sure, at times. You know, um, only in the sense that, uh, you know, in the early years of your career, um, you know, it's it's kind of easy to fall into a pattern where you, you know, you say, okay, I'm going to do this project. I'm going to make a record. I'm going to write music for it. And so you put all your energy into writing for it. And you put all your energy into recording it, and then you realize, you know, you didn't book any gigs. Or maybe you did book some gigs, and you go and do a tour, and then you realize you didn't think about what happens when the tour ends. Right. That's the hard part. Is like you always have to be thinking about what's what's going to happen after that, because if you don't have, you know, a bunch of gigs that other people have hired you for to come back to, then you end up in this this with these huge holes. You know where right. and and this high and low pattern too, where you. You're on this big adrenaline rush, like, oh, I was just on stage at this festival. We were playing to thousands of people, and then I got home, and I have no gigs, you know. Yeah. And that can bum you out, right, where you can kind of go. And, you know, there are times where even after, you know, even after you get, you know, you have your, I mean, I try not to get, I don't have an ego about having Juno nominations, but, you know, you get your Juno nominations, and then you... All eight of them? Uh, nine, actually. Nine. But, uh, you know, you... <laughs> <laughs> you uh you uh you know and then you you know and so you get that you get the Juno nomination or whatever and then January rolls around and you have no gigs and you're looking at your bank account you're dwindling down and there's mo- yeah you can there's certainly times when you go wow like I can't believe I can't believe I do this for a living you know right. and and then at a certain point you get kind of a little more uh comfortable with it where you where I just started to started to have faith a little bit where I would be like, you know what? Every time I've had no work, something came along. Some project came along to occupy me or somebody, the phone rang, right. you know, just when I thought the phone wasn't going to ring, the phone rang and someone had a gig for me. You know? but, but I would presume that people might not call you now more so because you just, you have so many projects. So they would just assume you're busy yeah. all the time. Yeah. I mean, the, the funny thing is, yeah, in the early days where, you know, you maybe had one project, like right. I had my Bruce Coburn project. Yeah, we were in, the, we were, you know, we were getting a lot of reviews, 
And, you know, reviews are a dangerous thing. Because, yeah, we were in the that album. I got a lot of reviews. I got a lot of support from CBC. And we were touring quite a bit. But, you know, a year later, I would get people and they would say, like, hey, oh, Michael, yeah, you're really busy. I saw that that article in the Globe and Mail. And you're like, that was a year ago, you know. Yeah. And But it would stick with people. And, and they would think, yeah, you're too busy, you know. And um, now I'm as busy as I've ever been. But... Um, you know, I've been lucky. Some people still call me, you know, like Elizabeth Shepard's been great to me mm. and she knows she, I mean, she, I think has an accurate sense of how busy I really am. And, and, and she knows that I will put certain projects aside to do hers and, and vice versa. Um, we've got a, a really great professional and good friendship, uh, that way, you know, where we, you know, we look out for each other and try to try to hire each other. But, um, but it is true. There are times where you just, you know, it's 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 nice to be a sideman, you know, mm-hmm. a sideman. You know, like I went to South Africa last year with uh, with this group Avatar, and it was really nice to have no responsibility other than to, you know, be at the airport at the right time and right. you know be in the lobby at the right time and play the music well, and it was great and it was nice to hang out with those guys, but to not have the responsibility because usually. I mean, I always enjoy the hanging out part and I always enjoy the social aspect, but it's still me that's thinking about, you know, okay, we, what time tomorrow we got to drive starting at nine o'clock and Mm. then, you know, who's going to, you know, all that stuff. You know, at this point, all the musicians I tour with, generally speaking, lead projects. So they all get it and everybody chips in and, you know, so I don't, I don't really have any situations where I'm performing with people where I go, man, that person is no fun to play mm-hmm. with or to be around I, I i i've tried to avoid that and i you know at a certain point i just you stop taking certain kinds of gigs or gigs with certain people but um but yeah i you know there's still times where i look around and i look at other guitar players around town and i think like wow that person is playing with everybody like everybody's calling them and there's you know there's it's human nature there's that part of your ego that's like oh they're not calling me you know why aren't mm-hmm. they calling me and but then you realize oh i know why they're not calling me because because you're busy. They have six, I have six projects on the go, <laughs> right. and that other person doesn't. Right. You know. um, what's it like playing with, with your brother? Because I find that I didn't know there was a 12-year difference. Yeah. So you know, the fact that even that you have a, a somewhat close relationship when you were growing up with that kind of a difference yeah. where he showed you about music and took you to places. But what's it like at this point or sometime in your career where yeah. you became equals? Yeah, well, the twelve years doesn't—it kind of disappears after a while. Yeah, right? yeah. You know, it was huge when I was a kid. I'm sure. You know, and 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 with my brother Peter, who's eighteen years older. I mean, they were they were these demigods. You know, these these yeah, intimidating. Yeah. And you know, I think they. You know, my brother Robert in particular, Roberto. He, I call him Robert, by the way. Um, <laughs> he, uh, uh you know, he was every, he's like, everybody knows my brother. Mm-hmm. He's a very social guy. You know, he's funny. He, unlike me, he remembers every joke. I can't remember jokes. <laughs> so he's always got jokes to tell. Um, and, uh, and he plays classical music really well. Mm-hmm. You know, he was principal bassist with the opera company. He played in the Winnipeg Symphony. He did, he was doing a lot of contemporary classical music, but he was playing in salsa bands on electric bass and he has a great funk band. And he's a great jazz player and he plays Cuban jazz really well. And, and you know, so he's a really versatile guy. And so for me, that was just, it was a bit intimidating because 
you know, he, he you know, I felt like, uh, I, you know, I, I think in some ways maybe I was attracted to playing in a new wave band, not only because it was the music of my time, but it was because it was music he hated, <laughs> you know. Um, and, you know, but I, I think, you know, I think it was important for me to find my own thing. And, and you know, in some ways, maybe that motivated, motiv- might have motivated, motivated me with the big band as well. Right? Mm-hmm. It's like, okay, that's, that can be my thing, you know, and, um, and my own aesthetic, you know. And so I, I wasn't really playing with him that much. Um, and then, uh, you know, but slowly, you know, we started to, uh, you know, when I, certainly when I put the Sicilian project together, I, you know, I wanted him to be involved. Um, but even with the Bruce Coburn stuff, he, he started to tour with us a little bit. You know, we went to India together. Um, and, uh, he would call me to sub into his R and B band and, um, and he was always super supportive and super enthusiastic. You know, I, I still remember, you know, when I won the Juno with, with in 96, I guess, um, he was the first person I called and he was so, so excited. On was the, was on he the nominated as well that year? No, oh, okay. that was a subsequent record where okay. we were nominated against each other. Yeah, that was, uh, 2008, I think. Yeah. Um, yeah, that was funny. Um, so he's, he, you know, now I, we just play together, you know, and he's, you know, and, um, he's, uh, he's such a great musician and, uh, and he, you know, he's, he's blunt in his opinions, you know, and we've produced two records together. You know, we did the, uh, um, my John Lennon record, we produced it together and, you know, I think we, we, we get along really well as in that context as well. Uh, he's got a really good sense of sounds and, and, and production. Um, and, and also he's got a good way of, he, you know, he, he seems to understand what I'm going for most of the time. And then it's funny because in the moments where he doesn't understand it, we might have a, a very heated discussion <laughs> about it because we're both very opinionated and we're both, you know, we have both have very strong ideas about right. what we want to happen. But, you know, I've never, never had any problems with the next day, you know, him not being my brother who I love and we go back mm-hmm. to, to, to doing stuff. So, um, no, it's, uh, it's nice. I have to say it's a, just a great blessing to get beyond that kind of age gap and where we're just colleagues, you know, and we're, we're friends and, and we're brothers, you know, and we went to, in 2009, we were, we, we both got this, uh, prize in Sicily called the Ragusani no Mondo, which is, a, it's not just for musicians. It's an, it's a, the province of Ragusa every year has this festival where they pick five people who are descended from the province and they fly them over and they have a big gala and a big, it's like a three-day event, and and uh, so we we went. We were we both uh, won it, and uh, um, I mean, I think they actually won it. I, I think originally they were going to nominate my brother, and then he very generously pointed out to them that I was doing a record of Sicilian music, so they should, <laughs> they should nominate me too. Um, but it was really nice, you know, and I'm sure, and it was very emotional for the two of us because we went over, you know, to be honored in a place in the province that our parents came from. And, uh, yeah, we, you know, we, we both got to get choked up quite a bit together, you know, I'm sure. but I, you know, I, I think that, um, you know, it's, I, it's a big, I have a big family. So even, you know, I mean, I talk about my brothers a lot, but my sisters who aren't musicians have 
been really supportive and and uh um of course you know you, the other thing is that you never you never really succeed in if your wife is not really into what you're doing and I, i've been really lucky that my wife is really into what i'm doing and and uh and you know because i know musicians you know like my wife has always she's always understood that um while you know this commercial gig over here might pay thousands of dollars this creative project over here might lose thousands of dollars and mm-hmm. she's she's always understood that you know but but she's always always championed the idea that the the creative projects are are important you know that you know knowing that none of us not none of us but i didn't get into this to play i like playing weddings don't don't get me wrong i i never want to offend anyone by saying i don't enjoy it I actually right. do i actually do enjoy it very much um as long as i'm playing with musicians i like playing with and but, there's good food <coughs> and there's good food um but I didn't get into it to do that. Right. I got into it to express myself, you know, through the different projects. Well, thank you so much for doing this. I want to close off with one more question, yeah. which is when you, when you look back, uh, um, what do you think it was that, and success being very relative, but, yeah. you know, I, you've been able to do what you want to do and become a musician, a full-time right. musician, right. and work on all these neat projects. What do you think ab- about you made this possible hmm um i think that uh a couple of things really um i think not being afraid to pick up the phone <laughs> although i am afraid to pick up the phone sometimes but <laughs> but just to reach out you know so i know you know when we were like with going back to the big band like when we had this idea of bringing in guests like don byron or joe lovano yeah, everyone thought it was really presumptuous of us and very cocky of us. Like, you know, who are these young guys with this all original music, big band, mm-hmm. you know, they must be paying those guys thousands and thousands of dollars to bribe them to come up. And, you know, and, and they, you know, as offensive as that is, but, you know, uh, <laughs> the fact of the matter is that we picked up the phone, you know, we called the agent, we called the manager, we called the artist, we reached out and said, here's our big band here's the music and we'd mail them a CD. Would you like to come and play? And they said, yes, I like the music. I will come and play. And so I think that a lot of times people are afraid to make that phone call. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so I always tell young, you know, when I teach at Humber or whatever, I always tell people, don't be afraid to reach out because you'd be surprised that if people, you know, people as great as they are and as established as they are, if they hear something that interests them, most musicians are going to go, Hey, that sounds pretty cool. And most musicians that I know are pretty nice, you mm-hmm. know, and, and they'll appreciate that you reached out to them because, you know, that's the thing I've learned is that everybody's kind of in the same boat as me, no matter what level they're at, they get off the road and they've got that hole in their calendar or they got that downtime and, and they come off that high of, you know, they, they might be playing at the, the Newport jazz festival, but they come up off that high of like, okay, but now what am I going to do? You know? And so it's nice when some young person who's got new ideas reaches out to you and says you know do you want to come and play um so i think that was that was part of it um i think that um not wanting to you know trying to find new projects you know um not being content to kind of stay with just one thing um and and just being restless i think is good you know i I think that that helps to be a little bit restless um and and then having colleagues that inspire you i think surrounding yourself with people that that inspire you you know that's a great motivator you know i look at 
people that I play with and or people I don't play with but I'm friends with and I think wow that person is is doing that I want to do do that too you know so um I think that you know it's like in some ways it's the same advice you'd give to like a, a you know a grade nine kid you know like pick your you know choose your peers wisely <laughs> hang out with the the smart kids or the ambitious kids you know one piece of advice my brother Roberto gave me a long time ago was try to always be the worst guy in the band you know and I pride myself no <laughs> <laughs> but but it's 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 true you know like you play better when you're around better players they they pick you up you know I, I mean I think of you know I like basketball so you know you think of someone like Kawhi Leonard or LeBron James they make everybody around them play better mm-hmm. you know they just do and music's the same way so try to surround yourself with those you know so I think that's really for me and luck luck a little bit of luck there's always a bit of good luck you right. know um but uh um I think that having uh, having a support network too is really important because you know that's what allows you to flop once in a while you know yeah and you we're all gonna flop right I think you have to not be afraid of that and uh and I, I would say too, and it took me a long time to to figure it out as a guitar player. It was just deciding at a certain point, like this is how I play and this is how I sa- how I want to sound. And if it doesn't work in that context, then I will find I will shape the context to my sound or to the way I want to play. And that's really, if I look at the most recent projects that I've been doing for the last say twenty years, it's really been about that. It's like shaping the project to me, as mm-hmm. opposed to me trying to figure out how to fit into other projects and. And I think now, you know, that's why people like Elizabeth or Avatar or, you know, the people that do ask me to come and be involved in their projects, that's part of it is they, they're like, you know, they, they know what they're getting. They know what they're getting. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for doing this. Oh, it was a real you. pleasure meeting yeah, you. Yeah, thank you. Thank you.